0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the aiconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Chris Hammond, Chief Scientist of Narrative Science and a professor at Northwestern University. Chris has been at the forefront of helping companies understand the power, limitations, and disruptive potential of AI technologies. So it turns out a good place to start for many companies is to look for places where AI can help automate certain tasks. So particularly this would be low skilled tasks that occupy the time of high skilled workers. An initial list of candidate tasks can be gathered by asking a few simple questions. So first, is the task really data driven? Secondly, do you have the data to support the automation of that task? And finally, do you actually really need the scale that automation can provide? So we'll talk about this in the education of future AI specialists, and many more topics. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Chris Hammond, Chief Scientist of Narrative Science and Professor at Western University. Welcome to The Data Show.
1: Thanks, Ben. It's terrific to be here.
0: So let's start off by uh, introducing you to the audience. And I think a good way to uh, do that is to talk about your role as a uh, professor at Northwestern. Specifically, you have a lab called the Intelligent Information Lab, which I would suspect overlaps with a lot of uh, what you're interested in. So what does the Intelligent Information Lab focus on?
1: Well, the focus of the InfoLab really has always been that although we have now access to uh, tremendous technologies in the uh, artificial intelligence space, we wanted to focus beyond those technologies into how those technologies interacted with human beings. And so a lot of the infolab work is really aimed at the relationship between people and data, people and information, uh, how they can find the right things at the right time, and how we can actually track what they're interested in, in order to uh, give them what they need. And then once we start giving them what we need, they need, um, think in terms of how to actually characterize it, how to frame it, how to explain it, how to show it or how to tell them about what's happening in the world in a way that makes sense to them.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like that, one, there's a human in the loop, human augmentation or uh, user interface components involved in uh, what you have been doing, which actually segues into my other question related to what you do at Northwestern, because recently you mentioned to me that you've been interacting more with the business school. So it sounds from your description that the types of things you're building are very much in line with uh, the types of things companies uh, might be in
1: need of oh absolutely I, you know I spend some time nowadays uh, over at Kellogg our business school um, and in particular talking with businesses who are coming to Kellogg and really asking the question what you know what should our data strategy be what should our analytics strategy be what should our AI strategy be and the thing for me is, on one hand, I want to tell them about the technologies and really what the length and breadth of the of the technology ecosystem really is, but on the other hand, bring them back to how do you know what kinds of metrics uh what kinds of thinking uh what kinds of decision making they need to bring to bear when they're thinking about their company as their company because a lot of organizations will look at AI and think, "How can I use the you know how can I use this new technology and for me, I always want to bring them back to. What do you do as a business? What do your business need? Um, where are there um, places where you need to uh, learn, uh, you know, learn something new? Where are there places where you need to have predictions? Where are there places where you need to sort of understand exactly what's going on in the world based upon a mass of data? And bring them back to that and then have them think about, okay, who's going to use this? How are they going to use this? Do you have the data? And it's always this functional role. I think that's the, uh, sort of the, the important word for me the functional role of these technologies in organizations and making sure that people don't, you know, bring technologies to bear because they're super cool because they are super cool. I mean, I mean, we have technologies now to, you know, to recognize audio and, and, uh, and visual and, uh, and, um, and make sense of sensor arrays to do massively, uh, uh massively accurate predictions about the world. But then you've got to ask, where do I need this? What am I going to use it for? And that's really the way my conversations nowadays proceed with people in business is trying to get them to articulate their business needs as opposed to jumping on a technology bandwagon.
0: Speaking of AI, you, you, uh, you've you been around uh, the AI uh, hype cycles, a few of them over time. And in your mind, what is fueling the current? interest of enterprise and businesses in AI? Is it basically the rise of deep learning and the headlines around, for example, what DeepMind and the deep learning pioneers have done? Or is it a matter of of these technologies becoming more accessible for uh, companies?
1: I think there are a collection of, of things. I mean, first and foremost, the rise of, you know, the success stories around deep learning, around sort of other, you know, statistical approaches to learning um are are clearly being driven by the fact that we now have um uh, a a volume of data uh that makes these systems possible. I mean a deep learning system uh no matter you know, or a, sort of a deep learning or sort of a, a, in general a a, a system that's uh, that's that's learning based upon neural networks won't work if you don't have enough data and now we have enough data. And you can look at almost every single success story, you know, the big the big success stories in AI. And they're all, they're all underneath them all. There's data that can be used to, to assess, to predict, to recognize uh, and respond to things in the world. But I think that there's more going on than that. Uh, and that is that I think a lot of companies are beginning to see that they, in fact, have a resource now that they didn't have before. And it's the same thing, and that is data. But they've been struggling. I mean, this is a thing that we've been seeing. They've been struggling for quite some time now. With regard to making meaning of that data, that is pulling that, you know, looking at all the data they've collected, pulling out the insights and actually presenting them to regular people, to their, to the people who are making decisions who might not have any data skills, who might not have analytical skills, who might not even understand the, you know, the underlying statistics of the systems. Um, But they need to know things. And um, in order to scale that, in order to make that work, you have to have the machine in there. And the machine actually has to do more than just the analysis. It has to turn that analysis into something that can be communicated to them. And uh, that means, again, re- you know, categorization, prediction for the kind of stuff that I care, You know, a good chunk of the stuff I care about, turning that meaning into language that anyone could understand. All of those are sort of being seen as ways for companies to make use of the mass of data uh, that they have in front of them.
0: So it's interesting because uh, I chair two conferences for O'Reilly. One is Strata, which is Strata Data, which is uh, big data and data science, and then of course the AI conference. And uh, Strata has been around for several years, and that's uh, I think it basically describes what you uh, were hinting at, which is a uh, is a conference where companies learn about data infrastructure and uh, basic machine learning and business analytics. And uh, that's been around for a while, and companies have been gathering uh, data. And so what you're saying now is that after all of these investments in infrastructure, you know, Hadoop, Spark, and all of these things, now companies are better
1: poised. Oh, absolutely. And They're better poised, and I have to admit, they're hungry. I mean, if you spent a few years and a few million on building up an infrastructure around data gathering, organization, even, you know, first li- you know, first line uh, analytics, you want some value out of that. And it's sometimes, but they were
0: already doing some basic things, right? Like BI, oh, absolutely. BI, absolutely.
1: Like but you can have, I mean, but in terms of BI, it's like you can build as many charts and graphs as you want, but still you hand that off to an end user and they will look at you often will look at you with a blank stare and say, you know, this is, this is as hard for me to understand as the spreadsheets you used to give me. You know, I, I can see the lines are here, but I don't know what they, they mean to me. I don't know how they help me. And getting to a more, a, sort of a more nuanced, more intelligent set of responses is, I think, crucial for organizations to make use of the data that they have. I mean, this is the, the thing that's heartbreaking, of course, is that we have so much unbelievably valuable data. I mean, like, shockingly valuable data. About almost everything we do, and we're when we're, we're we're running full tilt into gathering more and more. And everything in the in the uh, in the big data world is necessary uh, to make that to make that data useful for us. But it's not sufficient. And so you need you need people who actually understand how to learn from that data, how to build decision making systems based upon that data, and then how to communicate the insights that are coming out of that data. You need that next level. And again, you know, it used to be you wouldn't even think about pulling an AI solution in because you didn't have enough information for them or you didn't have it. You couldn't figure out how to build the rules. But with um, a lot of the machine learning work that's in place, you don't have to worry. You know, you certainly don't have to worry about access to the data. It's there. And in terms of building out the rules, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole role now of machine learning is building out the knowledge that uh, can then be used to recognize, assess, predict things in the world as opposed to forcing someone to look at a line graph and uh, do that projection on their own.
0: So you have a uh, very simple uh, checklist for uh, companies in your uh, excellent AI enterprise tutorial, which uh, I have somehow managed to convince Chris to turn into a full-day tutorial at our AI conferences next year in 2018. So. That's a, that's a great uh, thing to attend if you are interested in learning these uh, about these technologies and what they can do for you. So you have this excellent three-question checklist, which is basically, first, you have to ask yourself, is the task at hand genuinely data-driven? And secondly, second question, do you actually have data to support it? And then finally, which actually uh, I think uh, a lot of companies really need to uh, ask themselves is do you actually need the scale that automation uh, provides?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that is, has, been striking, uh, has been striking to me is that as I've been interacting more and more with uh, the companies that are looking, they're thinking about AI solutions, they often won't have gotten to the place where they can talk about what they want to do. And it's an odd thing because it, I think, as again, because there's so much data out there and there's so much hunger for something from that data, the starting point is often we have a lot of data. And bringing an organization back down to so what what do you want to, what do you need to do what kind of decision making do you want to support um, what kinds of predictions
0: and then it seems like uh, Chris and AI also uh, as you point out you know is 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 just something that can be automated
1: oh yeah um, because the the second thing that happens is that when um, people will they'll grab hold of a task and sometimes the task will will actually not have how how I put this uh, sometimes you'll see a decision being made. And of, an organ, from an organizational point of view, everyone agrees that this decision is, is really strongly data driven. But it's not strongly data driven based upon data that is actually uh, data the machine has access to. It's data driven based upon the historical information that two or three people ha- are, are making use of. And so it looks like they're looking at data and then making a decision. But in fact, what they're doing is they're looking at data and they're remembering, you know, one of uh, you know, a 2000 past examples um, that's in their head and coming out with a decision. And in that moment, you have to say, unless you really want to go through the knowledge engineering task of mining, you know, an individual for their decision making rules, don't think of this as a data task right now. I mean, we'll get there, we'll get there over time. But think about the tasks that are um, genuinely built upon analysis, their you know, data analysis, where the data is there, it's real, And it's not just things like, you know, massive chunks of text, which is also the other thing sometimes people do is they'll look at a, they'll say, well, we have all this information. And it's like, well, what form is that information in? It's like, well, we have all these documents. But from the machine's point of view, that's not information, that's text. And that's very different. I mean, when we look at a document, we read it and we understand it. When the machine looks at a document, it looks at it and and sees word. And again, you got to bring them back down to what's the task? um and it turns out that many tasks in areas like security, crime, fraud detection, those tasks are tremendously data driven and absolutely open to being able to have ai solutions being brought into place. But a task that is really depends upon uh somebody's, you know, somebody's been in the industry for, you know, 40 years. That's not going to, you know, that's not yet a place where people should be trying to um bring ai to bear yet.
0: But there there's some even the uh even some of these uh, professions, within some of these uh, profession, established professions, there are some low-level tasks that uh, people are starting to use machines for, right? So, in particular, I'm talking about the legal profession. Aren't there some simple tasks that you can
1: use? Some oh, of the current... absolutely. Absolutely. And, in fact, what you find is the, uh, there are a set of tasks in almost any organization that nobody likes to have anything to do with. Um, and so uh, in the law, there are there are tasks around uh, things like discovery, um, where you actually need to be able to not only use sort of raw search to look through a corpus of documents, but you need to have some idea of the semantic relationships between words, um, which is totally learnable and something that can be used to drive an overall process of discovering documents in a corpus and an assessment of the likelihood of an outcome of a case based upon textual analysis of past cases. Those things are all there and available for people to use. Actually, there are a couple of companies that do assessment, for example, in real estate, of where you should put your next franchise what, that's completely data-driven. And it's one of those things where it used to be a decision that was made, you know, back-of-the-envelope, guys who knew what they were doing kind of thing. Um, but if you look at the data, and the data is, the data are available, um you can make incredibly informed decisions in those spaces so it's not as though those tasks don't exist they do and in fact the because of the nature of the data that we uh you know we're absorbing now they not only exist but they're they're doable but it's a matter of understanding where to draw the line and it's sometimes easy for organizations to look at a problem and sort of hallucinate that there's not a different kind of reasoning going on uh, in the heads of the people who are solving the problem, and they wanted to be the case that they can automate something that might be a little too sophisticated now for AI or for automation techniques. But particularly in the world, world by the way, of things like uh, robotic process automation, where you have people doing, you know, you have human beings doing relatively rote things uh, like moving, you know, moving data around. Um, changing small elements in a data field and then storing, pulling it from one place, moving it to another. There are these places where you can get tremendous value out of very low level AI and automation. And you have to be willing to look at that and say, oh, I'm not gonna replace the smartest guy in the company. But you know, I will free up the time of uh, some of our smartest people by taking these tasks on and having the machine do them.
0: So when I think of AI in kind of the classic sense, I kind of uh, always have three components to the system, right? So there's sensing, perception, and then decision. So sensing uh, nowadays, if you look at some of these headline grabbing applications like self-driving cars, sensing requires a lot of sophisticated sensors specific to that application, LiDAR and whatnot. And then perception might entail deep learning because you have object tracking, object detection. And then the decision of what exactly to do with the information. So, but uh, in in kind of a purely software environment, like an enterprise, maybe the AI, an AI system need not have all of these components, right?
1: No, I absolutely agree. I I mean, I think that if you you think about sort of um, intelligence in general, in the classic sense, we and the machine have got to pull in information about what is going on in the world. And humans tend to do that using our, you know, our vision, our our tactile, our our audio. You know, we see and we see touch and hear things.
0: Yeah, multimodal. And
1: and machines do that. You know, we have we can machines can do that at some at some level as well. And then once we have an idea, once we've got we pull that in, we start building up an idea about what's happening. We start predicting what's going to happen next. We start making decisions and uh, and build plans and solve problems. And that's sort of going on inside of our heads. And then once we've come out with, you know, the with solution or made decisions, we have to be, move it back out into the world. And that can either be through, you know, moving around in the world, doing things. And, oh, you or mean, you mean
0: uh, kind of uh, exploring and trial and error?
1: Oh, or just, you know, you, you decide, you know, it's like if I decide I'm going go to if I decide I'm gonna go to San Francisco, uh, I know I got to get to O'Hare. Um, so I know I got to get an Uber and I go get an Uber. I mean, so right. there's, the, there's the stuff in my head and there's the stuff in the world. Right. Um but also that includes communication. Now as we look at the enterprise, we don't have we're not building a lot of robots that are moving, you know, wandering around uh law offices or uh or accounting spaces. So if you pull away the sensing, it's like okay, what do we what do we need then? Well, we need something that can uh, actually pull in the data. And that actually is easier than sensing. And we need something that probably can understand at some level natural language. That is something that we can present with problems or ask questions of. Then there's the same kind of reasoning inside the box. That is, characterizing what's happening in the world, predicting what's going to happen next, and making decisions.
0: And then, Chris, is there the same, the equivalent of knowledge or domain knowledge, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the, one of the things that I think is maybe missing in the mindsets of, of a lot of people who are thinking about AI. And that is, if I am going to I can use the information that's coming to me about what's happening in the world, but in order to actually genuinely understand it at any level, I have to have some idea about what that means. And if I'm going to have a system in particular that's making decisions or helping to advise someone, I actually need to know what the goals are associated with it. So I can't give you financial advice. Um, And I doubt I would ever give you financial advice, Ben. Uh, But I can't give you financial (laughs) advice unless I know you. And not only I have to know your financial situation, but I also need to know your goals and the level of risk that you're willing to take in investments. And so there are things I need to know, which are much more domain level. They're not just sort of data, data munging and sort of uh, statistical versions of learning. And so we have to think about how we integrate those two layers. Because at the end, I either am going to take an action in the world, that is an automated system, is either going to take an action in the world, or it has to tell me something about the world. I mean, there's really no other possibility. Either it does something, or it tells us about things. In the perfect world, it can do both. That is, things that do things in the world, that actually make decisions that are, even without the physical world, that make decisions about your finance, or make decisions about your business, those need to be able to explain themselves as well. And so... Language, I think, is a huge component of, I think, in some places, AI as it stands today. But in general, I think the future of AI and AI in the enterprise. That is, we need to be able to have systems we can talk with and can talk with us.
0: So one of the things that, of course, uh, machine learning, in particular deep learning, is one of its characteristics is uh, it requires a lot of data, right? So, and uh, oh, yeah. a lot of, of labeled data. And, uh, you know, humans don't require that many examples in order to uncover patterns. So what's your position around some of these systems, probably at least until the foreseeable future, until there's some breakthrough in uh, machine learning? You'll still need that combination of humans and machines because humans might be able to, I hate to say this (laughs) because this is old school. Humans may be able to uh, provide some simple rules to get to get the system up and running, right? So kind of uh, uh,
1: absolutely.
0: Because people get kind of uh, too carried away with uh, the machine will learn everything. Yeah, that's possible, but you'll need a lot of examples. In the meantime, maybe you can just provide a few simple rules to get
1: going. I, I think you are you're spot on, and in, in fact, I think that one of the big issues is that. If you think about what deep learning does for you, deep learning is, uh, you know, it builds up a a sort of uh, a deep learning installation that's doing supervised, that is, you're learning from examples and tags, builds up a network that will, given a new example, really figure out what the tag is associated with it.
0: And and, and, and then the other thing about it is the bigger the model, the better it is. But of course, a big model requires even
1: more data. That's exactly right. And so... But at the end, you get a thing that says, here's where I think this thing is. Here's what I think this situation is. And if you look at that, you realize, oh, well, then what am I going to do? And if the what am I going to do is sort of more than uh, reflexive, that is more than uh, sort of the kind of action you can take in under a second, where you're looking at at something and you've got a prediction, for example, that you're looking at data coming from sensors on your factory floor. and on an ongoing basis, you have a a network that 's tracking that 's learned already and is tracking uh, that sensor data and is telling you about machines that are at risk that are that look like they might be going about to go down and you 've got to do something about it at that point you might have twenty simple rules about how to respond to that situation that you put in now the thing is that the reason why putting in rules what has been so hard is because we didn 't have the First piece. And that is, if you have all the sensor data associated with your factory floor, and you try try writing rules around that data about which machines you should take offline and which machines you should you know replace or which machines you should fix, um, you every single rule you have has got to touch every single sensor. And that's impossible. But now we don't live in that world. We have a world where um, we can track all that data, um, learn from that data, and come up with a, dare I say it, a relatively high-level semantic characterization about what's happening. And then we can write rules around that. And those rules are simple, and they're actually pretty good because now we've we've divorced ourselves in terms of building a reasoning system as opposed to a recognition system. So deep learning is fantastic at recognition. Less good at reasoning is reasoning. But you can take the recognition system and then hook it to a decision tree, which is just rules. And um, that decision tree then can produce either an action or a suggestion as to what actions to take. And I think that the if you look at almost every r- real success story in the deep learning space where you've got something that's doing something or telling you about something or making a decision, um, you will always find this hybrid of exceptional technology uh, aimed at learning from masses of data linked to um, response systems, which are less complex, simpler, look more like rules that are making decisions based upon um, taking this massive data and bringing it down to here's what's happening. And it's funny when people will say, well, I've, I've, I've seen it. People say, well, that box is just a decision tree. It's like, Yeah, it's just a decision tree, but you need the decision tree here. Here's where you're you're looking at the set of possibilities that's a relatively small set, and you've got to make decisions about them. And in fact, there is where the domain lives, and there is where your business lives, because your business rules end up being part and parcel of that. And you might actually have it be that you've got policy in place that you don't take machines down during the week. And there are some people who have a policy in place that um, when a machine uh, looks to be dicey, you take it offline and replace it, and so it can be repaired immediately. One uh, policy is in place because you want to have continuous operation Monday through Friday, and the other is you want to optimize the overall lifespan of different machines. And those end up meaning that you have different, you make different decisions. But those are your goals. Those aren't you don't look, you don't you don't watch somebody. You don't build, build a learning system that watches somebody and then infers those goals. You can just put those goals in, and it's that kind of. Uh, hybrid, though, and I think is unbelievably powerful and really, really and, and what and what companies have got to understand is going to be part of what they're doing.
0: So, uh, AI is a set of techniques and a set of tools, and uh, as such, uh, the starting point for any enterprise is probably to find and prioritize use cases. So, a couple of questions. Uh, one, are enterprises still struggling with uh, finding use cases for AI and then secondly, uh, what's your advice in terms of uh, this problem of use case identification and prioritization?
1: I think that enterprise uh, enterprises are struggling with identifying use cases in part because their starting point uh, the starting point for a lot of organizations is less the reality of the technology and more sort of what they've been hearing about how powerful a technology is. Um, so, I think that for a lot of organizations, they end up thinking in terms of the technology first as opposed to the problem first. So, you know, the, the biggest piece of advice I have is and start thinking about, again, the functional role of these technologies. Do you want to have a system that can uh, make predictions for you? Or is there, I mean, or do you have problems where predictions make sense? Are there problems where you want to be able to look at a, car- at a situation and build a characterization of it? Are there places where you want uh, to get advice about what should happen next? Are there places where you need decisions to be made? And and literally just go through, forgetting about the technology for you know for an afternoon. Just forget about the technology and look at those places in the organization where people are are making decisions that are simple decisions, making this, you know uh, assessing things in the world based upon masses of data and start thinking in terms of where there are pain points uh, that have some data elements associated with them, where there are pain points, and then ask the question. Only after that, ask the question, what technologies can be brought to bear here? And stop letting it be that the technology, this is from the point of view of me being a technologist, I mean, thinking from the point of view of the technology being the first consideration. It's the second. But the first is the task.
0: Let me drill down at one point. You said... Areas where there are pain points. So I guess I alluded to one of the pain points based on the tutorial you give, which is, do you have scale to justify automation? So what are the other pain points that would justify moving forward with these technologies?
1: I would say if you have people with high skill sets that are involved in tasks that are low skill set tasks. So anytime that you have a knowledge worker who is doing what's functionally data wrangling, that is moving data around, that's a, I mean, it's a thing they hate and it's, a, it, it's an amazing waste of time. In those places where you find yourself uh, coming up short in terms of uh, making predictions around things like sales, customer qualification, the outcomes of decisions that you're making in areas like, you know, things like the, what I mentioned before, real estate decisions, where you are making decisions and you're finding yourself coming up short with regard to those decisions, because in fact they're not being linked. They're not; those decisions aren't linked to data. If you're in a a world in which you know, functionally there's a sort of a diagnostic, not medicine necessarily, but a diagnostic component, where you have to look at a situation and decide what's happening. Things like even in HR, looking at an employee and 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 being able to look at an employee and realize that that employee. You might be at risk at losing that employee and not you can't do it one by one by one by one by one with every single person all the time. You can't track everybody all the time. But in fact, the data is there so that individuals can be assessed and we can start predicting when we might uh, want to intervene and try to keep someone uh, with us.
0: There's an area that I've been thinking a lot about, which is chatbots and customer support, right? Because on the one hand, you can have great customer support with well-trained human workers, but that's going to cost you a lot of money. But you can probably always finish number one in terms of customer support uh, rankings, right? Then you introduce some automation. You can save some money, but really the technology might not be there. So what do you do?
1: (laughs) You know, I actually think there are places where the technology is there in some areas.
0: By the way, yeah, Chris, uh, just one of the dirty secrets in chatbots is uh, a lot of people in inside that industry will tell you it's uh, it's basically just uh, decision trees and rules.
1: Oh, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. It depends upon the nature of the space. I mean, if you've got customer support and the space of possible questions or problems that people have is massive, then you're in a difficult situation. But you can, for a lot of these, you can actually bring them down to the, what would be equivalent of a fact file for a chatbot support. Now, imagine for a moment if all you had was a system that where the front end is doing a little bit of, of language work, enough to figure out sort of what core area you're talking about. So you want to talk to somebody about, um, I mean, you're a cable company. You want to talk to somebody about either your phone or your TV or your internet connectivity. And so you can easily imagine a front end, a first uh, level of question and answers where you can get to that area. And then within each of those, whoever owns that area is says, okay, there are 20 to 50 questions that are problems that people are encountering. And if we can identify those problems, we can actually take people through a process of fixing those problems. And then some people say, well, yeah, but there are another 200 problems. And it's like, those don't show up a lot. And so why don't we fix the 50? And it really is from the point of view of, uh, for example, a decision tree. Imagine you, we fix that 50. But what we're going to do is we're going to be very careful so that when the system falls off the edge, that is, you're not talking about one of the problems the system knows about, it pulls a human into the loop. And there you have chat. And again, it's simple. You have a, a chat front end that will get you to the right place, get you through a bit of a process. But the important thing is never thinking that all you have is your automated system. And I think that, that, again, a lot of organizations will decide on a solution, and the solution is limited to the machine or the person. And it's never one or the other. But having the machine be that first round of interaction and have the interaction be positive and pleasant. But when the machine begins to not know, it moves you into an interaction with a human being um, who also gets you know, the history of all, what your conversation is, gets characterization of where you are, what you're, what you're doing, so you don't have to recap all those things. And you think about that, it's like, oh, this is, again, it's it's a place where we have enough in the way of data that is historical information about what people are asking about. We have enough in the way of data so that um, we can manage the construction of a system. But we don't want to think that that's all there is. There has to be this other component. And that human-computer teaming, that interaction uh, between what a machine can do for us and what we can do for the machine, that's a, a fantastic world. And it saves us money. And oddly enough, it means all the people who are doing customer service, the only problems they're working on are the problems that are the more complicated, more interesting, more challenging problems. And so we're even making their lives better than answering the same damn question, you know, 200, 300, 400 times a day. Um, And that's kind of the, I mean, for me, that's the, the kind of world I actually believe in. And oddly enough, it's, I mean, it's the kind of world that I think is part and parcel of the overall view of AI technologies at Northwestern.
0: So as an educator, both at Northwestern and in industry, for example, at our, our conference, you teach this day-long tutorial on AI in the enterprise. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is going to be more front and center moving forward, and it's becoming more front and center now, to be honest, is uh, fairness and trust transparency in machine learning, right? So in particular, bias, guarding against bias and disparate impact uh, and all of these things. So is this the kind of thing that you, you're you trying to bring into your courses at Northwestern? or And also, is this the kind of thing that companies are asking you about? Or is this something that you still have to educate
1: companies about? I think there's a concern about it in the enterprise, but it's still something that I think companies need to learn about. So, for example, you can build a deep learning system based upon existing data that can do a wide variety of things for you. So, for example, there's the, you know, there's the, of course, there's the vision and there's the audio. But imagine if you did have data around the factory floor, you'd be able to, you'd be able to build a learning system. It doesn't necessarily have to be a deep learning system, but a learning system that can actually make predictions about machine performance. And you don't actually need, from an organizational point of view, you don't need to know exactly what its reasoning is all the time. But imagine you took the same technology and you moved it into the realm of making decisions about, I don't know, the credit credit worthiness of an individual. There you're no longer in a place where you can say, it's not necessary for me to know what decisions the machine is making or how the machine is making its decisions. You need to know exactly how the features associated with the description of the individual and the situation are weighted in making that decision. Uh, You need to know what the training set was so that you can make sure it wasn't biased to begin with. Uh, you need to know that the system is not in a self-sustaining loop where it makes predictions and then um, it learns only from the, you know, the predictions that it makes and that is self-reinforcing. Uh, because there are places where, both from an ethical and from a business standards point of view, you need to know why you're making the decisions that you make. And if you're using a machine to help you, It needs to be able to explain why it's making decisions, uh, the decisions it's it's suggesting or it's making for you. And you need to know that in certain areas, in particular where it has to do with evaluating uh, humans.
0: When you say you need to know you as an executive should start pressing your data scientists to make sure that the algorithms they're building adhere to a certain level of
1: ethics. I would say yes. But I wouldn't say the algorithms. I would say the products. Correct. Because I might use the same algorithm in two different circumstances, in two completely different circumstances, where in one circumstance it makes complete sense. Because in fact, I don't care what the underlying reasoning uh, is. Used, you know what underlying reasoning is used to tell the difference between one of you know two thousand different kinds of cars. I don't need to know the underlying reasoning for that kind of recognition system, but I do need to know the underlying reasoning system, where if I'm getting a prediction on whether or not something's credit worthy, a prediction about whether or not a company is going to do well, a prediction around whether or not an individual is going to commit a crime again, there I need to know exactly what the reasoning is. Because if you were calling upon a human to do the same task, you would not accept an off-the-cuff response. Even if you thought it was right, you would need to have an explanation. You would really need to have a, a trail of reasoning so that you could, if there were places where you disagreed, one, you could intervene, but also you could explain it, in, in, quite truthfully, to regulatory agencies or in your space. And I, for one, would feel unbelievably uncomfortable building a, a deep learning system, for example, that gave me predictions about the credit worthiness of an individual where I would have no idea why it's coming up with its answers. That would make me. Forgetting about regulatory issues, that would just make me uncomfortable, that I was depending upon something I didn't understand at that level for that kind of problem.
0: So is this type of discussion, this type of material, is this something that's starting to appear in uh, university machine learning courses? And also, is this the kind of material that uh, uh, should start being discussed more within companies?
1: I think the answer to both of those is yes. In fact, from my perspective, I've seen this show up over and over again in three distinctly different ways. One, technical discussions about explicability of machine learning systems that are really aimed at how can we build explanation modules in association with the kinds of systems we're building. Two, from the C-suite, there are a lot of questions about, well, how can I know what these things are doing? Um, They seem, a lot of them seem like black boxes. And then three... is amazing to me darpa has an entire initiative in explicable ai and that is aimed directly at the notion that there are some things in the world where it's okay not to know what a system is doing there are some things in the world where it's not and those areas we need to have explanatory capabilities
0: it it seems to me that there's also kind of so there's the explainability and stuff but then there's bias there's ethics and ethics to me also includes to be honest one of the things that the AI community sometimes doesn't talk enough about is the importance of error estimates and error bars for mission critical applications, right? So you can imagine putting a, a machine learning system, let's say on a plane, and you have no idea of error estimates, you would never do that, right? So, so, but basically, so what are, so there, it seems to me there's, there might be a machine learning class in the future, which just talks about all of these other issues.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're just, um, we just announced, but we're going to announce it loudly soon. We're doing a master's in artificial intelligence out of Northwestern. And the overall push on the class, you know, the the course or the, I guess, the program, uh, the overall uh, push in the program is certainly the technology. So it's like training people to be, you know, exceptional technologists. But then outside of that, it's like, oh, you know, once you understand the technologies, you have to understand how to design design for those technologies, how to architect systems that are, you know, essential to companies with those technologies. But a large component is this notion of um, what are the sort of the the ethical and performance as well as usability, but the ethical and performance considerations that you have to make when you're thinking about building a system. And even in those places where the system is not in an application that requires communication, you still need to be able to have it you know, give you some feedback as to reliability, um, as to the Probabilities associated with its responses, because nothing's hundred percent.
0: Yeah, nothing. I mean, nothing.
1: But a lot of people, when they look at machines, they forget that. And so, having something that there where there's clarity. And so, I absolutely, are, you know are when I think that we are now coming out of the of the latest absolutely fantastic time period of these are great technologies in, in terms of AI and the machine learning community has moved AI forward so tremendously over the last I mean essentially over the last decade. And now we're entering an era of, all right, given these great technologies, what are the great products look like? And what are the implications of these products as we move them into the enterprise? And those implications are certainly things like the future of work, how to have these systems interact with human beings, what does it mean for them to communicate in, in language? And that's, for me, that's narrative science. Right. how to have them explain themselves at the level of your goals and your, you know, your company's goals and your policies, and how do you have them interact with these other things in the world, that would be us, where we're intelligent too, but we're intelligent in an absolutely different way. And all of those issues are now the emerging issues in AI. And you see them as individual components, but the reality is, is that the AI as it exists as a technology, we I think we have an excellent handle on it and we are driving forward on it in fantastic ways. But AI as it exists as a force for change in the enterprise, interacting with human beings, embedded in process, embedded in workflow, and partnering, interacting with humans, that's the next round of work. And so I would actually think in terms of the next round is almost not it's beyond AI. It's it's this idea of integrated intelligence. What does it mean to integrate intelligence systems into um, into communities with people, into work, and all of the issues you brought up, having to do with ethics and uh, and explicability, understandability, communication, and the right technology at the right time.
0: And I have I have the perfect uh, umbrella buzzword for it. It's uh, responsible AI.
1: <laughs> responsible AI. Um, and, and with that, that sounds very. Uh, sour, though. I like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of integrated intelligence, oh. something that goes beyond the machine into us and our lives. And because I, I'll tell you one last thing. The, the great thing about uh, thinking about systems interacting with people and partnering with people is you might have a system that does a, a really great job with statistics, but actually doesn't understand your values. And you might understand your values, but, you know, maybe not so good at statistics. Um, but together, you're smarter than either system by itself. And that's what, uh, that's what you want.
0: And with that, thank you, Chris Hammond.
1: Thanks, Ben. This was a great conversation. This is like this is fantastic. I, uh, I really appreciate you uh, in, inviting me to join you today.
0: You can follow Chris Hammond on Twitter at KJ underscore Hammond. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud. And never miss an